Great. Thanks, Peter. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Great to see you all. Uh, thanks for coming today, especially if you are uh, brand new. Like Spencer said, glad you guys are with us for one of our gatherings today. We are in a, a sermon series right now in the Gospel of John. So we just started a few weeks ago. Uh, if you're just joining today, you haven't missed a ton in terms of length at least. Um, so we're in the middle of chapter 1. Today we'll be in uh, chapter 1, verses 29 to 34. If you do have a Bible want to turn there, feel free. There's also an insert in your, um, program, in your uh, worship folders, uh, and this will be on screen here in a second as well. Uh, but basically, so, so far, uh, we have been talking a lot about uh, Jesus kind of pre-incarnate Christ, so that, that just means like who he was before he was a human being the Son of God, the Word of God, before he became flesh. Uh, we talked a lot about John the Baptist, this predecessor of Christ uh, figure who has come up already today. We're going to see, uh, learn a lot more from him as well, theologically. But narratively speaking, Jesus uh, comes on the scene today. Uh, even though he's been the subject matter of every you know, sentence and word up at this point, right? But uh, narratively speaking, he comes on the scene and is baptized, uh, which is a big deal for all four of the gospel accounts in the New Testament to uh, hone in on. Uh, in different ways, they all agree, but they, they focus on different things. John is a bit unique, and we'll talk about that today. So uh, if you're just joining, it's kind of where we are in the story. This is about three years before Jesus will die and rise again. His baptism signifies a lot to us theologically, but also kind of begins what we call his earthly ministry. Like at this point, he, um, you know, one of the gospel accounts includes his uh, fasting and his time in the desert. Uh, in his kind of battle with the devil initially, and then uh, right in, like in the Gospel of Mark, right into healings and miracles, uh, John includes uh, some things in chapter 2 as well, we'll dive into soon. But, um, so, with that said, let me just read uh, the passage today. Today's uh, title is the Lamb of God's Baptized. That's kind of our main subject matter, but we'll uh, also talk about a few other things. Uh, let me read this in full, and then we'll say a few more things by way of introduction before we, um, before we really get into it. All right, verse 29. The next day he, John the Baptist, uh, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not, did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water, said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Okay, so what, what you see here at the end, really kind of throughout all this, this is in a lot of ways very summative of John the Baptist's purpose and ministry is to say, I'm, I'm baptizing Christ, but witnessing to you that this is the one, that there, there's, there's less guesswork, you could say, in place, whereas beforehand there might, might have been more in different ways, right, a more cloudiness. The veil is beginning to be pulled up, and John the Baptist is a, a kind of a key figure in helping uh, to, to do that. A bit more on that later. Uh, but this is John's account of Jesus' baptism. Like I said, all four gospel accounts have uh, some, some account, uh, others are much more detailed than this. John's is pretty pithy and quick. Um, but it's interesting here because John uh, says very little about the actual water baptism, like the event of it itself. But here, it's just kind of assumed it happened for the sake of focusing on how the Spirit descended and remained on Jesus after he came up out of the water. That's kind of one of John's big point of, uh, you know, focuses or foci what's the plural of that one anyway um focuses so uh he's going to talk about that a little bit and then kind of discuss how that was a form of revelation about the character of jesus and um 
his, his sonship and mission. So we'll get to that later as well. Uh, but there's also a lot of great titles in this, in this section. I um, encourage you guys to uh, revisit this regularly, uh, especially if you're kind of just forgetting or want to remember who Jesus is. Uh, titles like Lamb of God and He Who Baptizes with the Holy Spirit and Son of God uh, there at the end as well in, in verse 24. Uh, that's this big kind of, you know, revelatory statement. Not just a man, in other words, uh, God's very Son, the Word of God eternal made into, into flesh. So, um, so what I want to do today with all that said, is ask a few questions about this passage that I think will help us to, to delve a little bit deeper. Like Questions like, how did the baptism occur? What is John focusing on? Uh, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And maybe the biggest of all, why was Jesus baptized? And so we'll spend a, a good amount of time on that. We will not unpack it entirely. Uh, those of you who know a bit, a bit about this, um, I'm not going to... There's probably like three or four, maybe five, really substantial answers or big answers to that question. So uh, we're going to look at a couple today, uh, one that I think John sort of uh, shows us and one I'm just going to add on to it. Um, so uh, we'll get to that uh, toward, towards the end. So that's the lay of the land. Uh, today I want to start with this question though. Uh, what happens at the baptism? What does John focus on? And again, John chooses to focus not so much on, you know, the, the um, descriptors about what happens when he goes in the water and comes back out, but he assumes it all for the sake of focusing on the Spirit of God like a dove descending and remaining on Jesus after he uh, comes, comes out. So those two things we'll look at here in order, the Spirit descending and the Spirit remaining. So the first is the Spirit descended. Now, if you're here a couple of weeks ago, this is, um, I won't spend a lot of time on this, but this is a revisitation, at least a little bit in part, of the glorious left the building idea. So if you, if you weren't here for that, we talked a bit about how there's this very pronounced biblical theme in the Old Testament about how God's glory and, and spirit leaves the temple and goes elsewhere. And it's kind of left hanging. Like, well, where is it going? And is, is it going to come back or not? Or is it going to set up home elsewhere? Uh, and Jesus then became, becomes this very resolving, uh, glad answer. In a lot of ways, it's a happy answer. Uh, we talked a lot about that because the spirit left. When he left the temple, he left all that that represented too. He left the works of our hands as being kind of the way we approach him. And he now, in, in John 1, it says we've seen Christ's glory. Uh, now the Spirit is descending on him. Uh, in chapter 2, it'll say that he's the new temple of God's presence. So it's this, uh, it's this glaringly new thing that, that we as readers are supposed to start to pick up on and say this is not where the Spirit was in former times. This is different. It's not a building anymore that we made. It's uh, flesh and bone. Uh, that, uh, that is God himself, God, the, the Son of God. And so that changes everything. And, and we'll, you'll see this implications for this throughout the next 18 months we're in this series. But at least at this point, we're meant to see that God is doing something new and different from the old way, from the old system. And it has much more to do with him, Christ. He's the center. He's the refocusing rather than um, our approaching of God with our moral acuity. Okay, so that's uh, one thing just to kind of say as, as an aside and, and to remind you of if you were here a couple weeks ago. The big thing, though, I want to focus on is the directionality. Uh, that's very important here theologically for us in that the Spirit is uh, coming down. So at this point in John, not only do we have these themes of the Word becoming flesh, we have these Christmassy themes of God came into the world, born into our plight of a virgin, uh, but we also now see that the Spirit is descending 
onto Jesus to yet, yet again underscore this message that the gospel is the good news of God's descension. It's coming down uh, rather than our ascension and our going up. Uh, you know, if it helps to kind of pull in some Christmas stuff here again, uh, think about how the angels rejoiced at Christmas time, right? Whenever they announced the birth of Christ. But one place they didn't sing is at the Tower of Babel. Uh, if you guys remember that story in Genesis 11, like when man was unified in defiance against God and building a tower up into heaven, seeking to climb up to him, it's not a place the angels sung and, and rejoiced. Uh, and so you had this kind of like um, emotional side to this as well. Like when you think, when do the angels sing? And when are they just serving a purpose? And when are they not singing? You know, I think sometimes that tells us a lot about where to emphasize uh, the right things uh, and what to de-emphasize. So um, ascension on a human level is not sung about. It's not glorified. It doesn't continue. It's actually judged. Uh, but God's descension and coming down to us is the essence of, of the gospel. And it is sung about and celebrated. And we should as, as well. If you were to write this in the form of a beatitude, uh, I might say something like this. Blessed is the one on whom the Spirit descends, the one who folds up and lays down his moralistic stepladder, and who marvels in the fact that God has come low to save us by grace. But woe to those who climb and who miss God on the ascent. Gerhard Forty, uh, a Lutheran theologian, says this. We, we tend to look on salvation in that light, our progress toward becoming God's of some sort, but instead, our salvation consists in turning about and going the other way, getting back down to earth. To get there, we must learn to trust God, to be grasped by the totality of his grace, to become a creature, and to become human again. And I would say, just to add some words to that, I would say this is to realize then, and this is what I encourage you guys with, with this word picture, rich word picture we have here of God's dissension, is that every day, not just at conversion, but every day we are the ones being descended upon. We are the ones being saved by God's relentless, one-way, descending love in Jesus Christ. Or this great picture here in verse 29 when John says, or says about John, he saw Jesus coming toward him. I mean, these things might seem like inconsequential and random, but isn't that beautiful? I mean, that's your story. Christian, or if you're not a Christian yet, this is like the, something to understand about the posture of God towards us in his son is that he's coming towards us not to crush us, but to save us, to, to move towards us, put his arm around us, wipe away our tears, and to ultimately fight all of our battles in, in dying for our sins. All right? The second thing we see from the Spirit is he doesn't just descend on Jesus, he remains that too might sound a little insignificant until we realize that this wasn't always the case. All right, so I want to read a few verses from 1 Samuel 15 and 16. It's an Old Testament story about Israel's first king, Saul. Uh, I'm just going to set it up. There's chapters of like context to this, so I can't go into all of that. But basically the setup is just to say uh, Saul was a wicked person like you and me. Very bad person. He sinned against God repeatedly, uh, but there's one point where he especially does. God told him to do, to do this one thing, and he didn't. He's kind of like Jonah in that regard, again, just like us. Um, what, when the commandment comes in, it incites. But he, so he doesn't. He's disobedient, he was arrogant, and he was very, very greedy. Okay, and so there's this one point that happens in his life, and that's the background then to what I'm going to read here, this short paragraph from 1 Samuel 15. This is actually Samuel speaking here. He's a prophet figure. Uh, he starts by saying to Saul, 
Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Okay, stop right there. Do you notice kind of the tit-for-tat nature of that? Because you have rejected God, he has rejected you. Okay, so this, now, now just as we keep reading then, and think about John 1 as we go, go forward here and look for similarities, but especially dissimilarities. Okay, so then it says, Saul, hearing this, uh, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid to the men, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. And then maybe the most damning part of all of this, now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. All right? So now this is, there's a lot going on here. And this is uh, actually a very, it's supposed to be very frightening story, okay, in one sense. Saul is because Saul's just like us. And so we're, we're kind of left with this, what's going on? And what, questions about why is the spirit leaving? And on what basis did he leave someone, right? And does that still happen today? Um, let, me, let me simplify this by, by saying this here, because there's a lot going on. But here's kind of the, the contrast between the stories. That story, what we're seeing language-wise, also narratively in John 1. In the Old Testament, we have these stories of how the Spirit only remained upon people in relation to their obedience. Uh, think of the story of Samson as well. Happened to him too. But now in the New Testament, the Spirit remains. He never leaves us even when we sin because salvation is not dependent on our moral uh, proclivity, uh, on our moral abilities. Not our obedience, but his. Uh, the, the core of the gospel is not your obedience to God. The core of the gospel is not your responsive, reciprocal obedience to God, uh, contrary to what you may have heard, even from pastors before. The gospel is, is based on, founded on, the obedience of the Son, saying, you know, listening to his Father, saying, go and die for their sins and the willingness of the Son to die in our place. His obedience to the command of the Father saying, go and be the Lamb of God to take away the sin of, of the world. And so we're supposed to read these competing things in the Bible sometimes. We're, we're, uh, this might be a new concept to you, but we're not supposed to take them and say, well, there's a way to resolve that tension so they are equal. There's a way to explain one of them uh, and qualify one of them in a way that makes them somehow the same. And that's not what you should do. They're meant to be different because the testaments of the Bible are different. They're built on different promises. Their former way is no longer. Uh, the, uh, the, the fact that the Spirit leaves people in relation to their obedience is no longer. Isn't that amazing news? God will never leave you if you are in him. You're not one sin away from this happening. Don't live your life under that fear and that burden. Jesus is, as a God too, but as a human being, he is a harbinger of this time. He is the one stand, standing between these two competing realities, where it was conditional for a time, and now it's not. Well, what happened? What changed? Jesus changed. He's the one who came into the world, and the rules are different. God has never once in history removed his spirit from a Christian. Uh, we are in a different epoch now, a different era, one of grace, and one that keeps his spirit upon us even when we disobey and sin. Uh, 2 Timothy 1, great uh, 
letter version of this idea where Paul says, when we are faithless, he remains what? Faithful, yes. See, that's like, that's something that is amazingly good news, but not something to take for granted because uh, if it were based on us, that wouldn't, that wouldn't be the case. And you see that kind of tit-for-tat nature with Saul where it says, God, God even says there is, there is a consequence to rebelling against me. There's a consequence to disobedience. And the consequence is your exile from me. The consequence is you and I cannot coexist. The consequence is death. And so enter stage left Jesus and we have much better news when he comes on the scene. We all, barely, he's barely even here yet. And we're seeing the gospel come down from heaven. We're seeing the gospel uh, infused and baptized. We're seeing the gospel remain on people uh, and stay forever. All right, but you might be thinking, well, Jesus is perfect. Of course, the Spirit remains on him. But look what it says about him. Uh, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So see, if, if you believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you are given the Spirit too. And, and not just a sprinkling of him, but a full immersion into God himself. This is, uh, we're, we're Baptists here, so this is kind of why we, of course we think this, right? But we, but we would say, uh, whatever your denominational, you know, whatever, we would say um, the, there's theology in the, the mode of baptism. Um, and and if, you, if you start to understand it spiritually, not that this is the only way to understand water baptism, it's not, to be clear, but if you understand that we are baptized spiritually when we believe the gospel, we are immersed into God, then this is important because the Bible's not saying you are sprinkled with him. You're immersed. The Bible's, not, the Bible's basically saying there's not one part of your body and soul that is not wet with the gospel. Not a single speck. So why are you striving to somehow fix that problem that doesn't exist, right? You are immersed with God. He is all around you. He is in you. He is above you. He is beneath you. Uh, there's no more chasm, there's no more barrier, there's no more travel that's needed, no pilgrimage. We don't have to go anywhere. He has come all the way to us like John the Baptist saw him and pointed. There he is. He's coming all our way to us. Those of us who have dipping our toes in the Jordan, he's coming all the way to us. He came all the way to you guys uh, and didn't require uh, a bit of your strength to take one step uh, towards him. So this is what matters. Uh, are we baptized in the Spirit or not? Has our exile from him ended? I was actually driving uh, to work into the building here this week. I think it was Wednesday. You guys, some of you guys know I live close here and it's like a one minute. I should walk more, but whatever. <laughs> Feeling the, just the guilt of that. Okay, but <laughs> anyway, just, I was driving in. On, halfway here, I just had this thought out of nowhere that um, I am so not the man I want to be. I'm very, very, very far from it. And um, I've been a Christian a long time, whatever that even means. It's a relative term, I realize, but um, I feel like I have. And um, it got me thinking a bit about Romans 7, Paul's existential crisis. Remember when he says, all the things I know I should do, I never do. All the things, he's saying this as a Christian. All the things I, I don't want to do, I keep doing. I can't stop it. Like, help. Who will set me free from this body of death? And then he says, thanks be, this ends his section, thanks be to God, not for the law, but for Christ Jesus, my Lord. That, that's the one who sets me free. And, and I think that result, it was funny, like I was, when I was coming into work, I was, 
I realized when I got here that I wasn't crushed by that thought. Like, I, you know, I think because I'm a Christian, like, and I think, I know most of you in the room can empathize, but because I'm a Christian, I'm not crushed by the thought of being a failure because, um, not, or not the man I want to be because I have Christ, because I'm baptized in the Holy Spirit. So why would I worry? Like, why would I care, right? Um, and so I find myself, find myself smiling. I'm like, why am I smiling, having these dark thoughts about myself? But I think that's the paradox of the Christian life is you smile as you get worse. You smile as you keep not being able to do what you probably should do. You smile as you don't meet your own standards for what a good person is. Forget the Bibles for a second. What are your standards? You don't meet them. Right? None of you have met the standards. What you think about when you think about what's like an ideal human being, you don't meet them, right? Can we agree on that? I hope we can. I mean, I, that, that, I would say this over and over about myself uh, as I've grown. I feel like I've become worse of a person in a lot of ways, but I've become closer to Christ. Um, anyway, much more to say about that. But I think the imagery in baptism is not that we are just washed from a few little mistakes and sent on our way, but that we are plunged into God's very presence, the one who will never leave us or forsake us. He'll always remain, come what may, even death, or worse, failure in life. Like, you know, failure can seem worse to us sometimes. I was reading, another theologian I follow once called this idea, I don't have this on screen, he called this idea a firewall of divine mercy for Christians who feel like failures. The gospel is a, is a, is a firewall of divine mercy for Christians who feel like failures. Isn't that great news? So I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but do you, do you feel any of this? Have you ever felt any of this? See, the gospel says, when you fail, don't, don't try to make up for it. Stop it. I was actually talking to a guy after first service, and he said, I want to get the, the, um, the phrase, it is finished, tattooed on my arm. And he was, like, talking about some things uh, about this passage, actually, and he said, I just feel like if that's true, I just need to stop it. Like, just stop it. Stop trying to fix it. And I'm like, you should get that one on the other arm. Stop it. <laughs> and then, like, you know, you're kind of like, you might need to hear both, you know, sometimes. But um, <laughs> so he's like, maybe I will. Probably won't. But um, the gospel is a firewall of divine mercy for Christians who feel like fail. I just want you guys to hear that. We just sang about that. Bring all your, uh, bring all your failures, right? Peter's cut another one of these cool things. We did, not, we did not plan for that. But bring all your failures, all your mistakes, and your addictions. Bring them to the foot of the cross in that last song. Um, okay. But the question is, like, how, how does... You know, how does he baptize with the Spirit exactly? Who is baptized and when? I want to, like, look at this question now of why was Jesus baptized? And, and because that's the answer to that, some of those other questions. Uh, John the Baptist answers this in part for us when he says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. So what this is saying is there's something about his baptism that pulls up the veil for us as if he becomes that much less hidden to us. And, and not just him, but his main reason for coming into the world, his mission. And that's why I think this amazing title uh, is here in this context for us, in part, is he's the Lamb of God. And it, so it comes into play, not as a name per se, but a form of revelation. It's a descriptor. This is who he is. This is why he came. This is what he came to be. He's a sacrificial lamb. 
It reminded me of Genesis 22, one of the early stories of the Bible where Abraham, one of the patriarchs, says to his son Isaac, God himself will provide the lamb for the sacrifice, my son. If you know that story, it's kind of emotional, right, in that point, at that part. I'm not going to delve into it uh, today. But, um, but God, God himself, and if you look at, it's interesting how John 1 goes too because then it says that it's God's lamb. And so I think now in John 1, we have this, uh, this completion of the motif. It's like Jesus has come on the scene and how, now he's not a lamb with the, you know, the uh, what's it called, indirect article? I forget my grammar here, but indefinite. Indefinite or definite? I, f- I forget. Then the is definite, right? It's not the indefinite like any lamb. Jesus is the lamb. He's the one that all the small lambs pointed to. And, uh, and so it is possessive, right? God is saying, so I think what's less important here is for us to understand exactly what sacrificial lambs were in the Old Testament uh, and understand more that they were associated with blood. They were sacrificial animals. And that's what Jesus' name is. Like you can't have Christianity without his death. You cannot have a Jesus without his bloody atonement. There is no such thing. Look what he's called. His first title is Lamb of God, right? But because it's God's Lamb, God is saying to us through this passage that it's my solution, he's my possession. It's me. It's not over there and pointing to it, you know, uh, nor is it your Lamb that you bring to me. It's my Lamb I bring to you. See the same motif there? God descending. I'm bringing my lamb to you. You don't bring, like, like the sacrifices of old people brought sacrifices to God with their hands. They worked to buy pigeons and buy lambs with their money and with their hands. They brought them to God. God's saying that's over because that signified that you save yourselves, that you sacrifice, you come to yourself, you come to God on your terms. The New Testament says the opposite. God's saying my lamb. I'm giving him to you, and he's willingly going to the cross for, for you and me. And all this might seem a bit off subject to our question of why he was baptized, but try to think with your mind's eye for a minute and picture Jesus at the Jordan River. There's crowds there being baptized. John the Baptist is there looking all crazy, and all these people are coming in. And then you have Jesus coming over the hill, and he comes down to the water, the one who is the word, the eternal word of God, God's son, light of lights, not a spot of imperfection in him, and he walks into the Jordan River, not to baptize people himself, nor to, you know, stand right behind John like a mob boss or a bouncer and, like, point at people and saying, yeah, that one's really bad. Dunk him twice, right, or something like that. That's not, that wasn't his role either. But instead, what does he do? He got in line with sinners. He who knew no sin got in line with sinners and waited his turn. That's insane. This is actually why a lot of Christians trip up over this issue and they try to explain it away rather than letting this kind of marinate and be kind of almost a problem for a minute. See, because when Jesus got into the water, he got into the thing that was figuratively washing sins off people's bodies. He got into the sin water. Uh, the, the gospel is the, the good news that God sent his son to step into our world and get into that sin water so he might be immersed in our problem. Remember when 2 Corinthians 5 says, he who knew no sin became sin? 
so that in him we might become purified or become righteous. That's exactly the same here. This is just narrative. That's prepositional, like statement truth or like letter-like truth. This is a story. Same thing. Jesus, though he knew no sin, got in line with sinners to be baptized in the same way. It's like, what? And this points us ahead then to a time when he would truly be baptized, truly be immersed in our sin, when he died on the cross for us. Uh, Mark 10 uses baptism language to talk about his, his death, where it says, Jesus said to them, are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, speaking of his impending death? You see that? He was baptized in water, you guys, to point to that. He was lowered into water because one day he'd be lowered into a grave. He came up out of the water because one day he would come up out of the grave. It was his whole mission. There is no other central piece to the gospel than the death and resurrection of Jesus. John can barely even begin his gospel without saying it. He can barely even begin his gospel without implying it. Explicit or implicit? It's all over the pages, dripping off of it like honey for us to, uh, to taste and to take in. But this is what baptism is all about. It's about foreshadowing how he would one day immerse himself in our sins as our substitute, as a lamb, and die to take away the sins of the world, then rise up again out of the water, but really out of the grave, so that the Spirit might descend on us and remain forever and ever. So, you see how, like, it's um, not something that we ultimately do, but it's for us? I was thinking this past week, too, I had never actually thought about it in these terms before, not that it's novel or radical or anything, but just how, when you try to explain or answer this question, why was Jesus baptized, um, there's a lot of of answers to that, uh, and I touched on just a couple today. But I think you can look at it from a human and a divine perspective, too, where you say, the divine answer would be, Jesus was baptized for you. You weren't baptized for him. That's the gospel, right? That's the divine, the divine side where it puts it, the light only on him. The human side, though, would be to say, as a human being, he's still a human being like us, the human side would be to say that he died as a forerunner to our experience, uh, almost like he was a, you know, a sign of what was to come, a first fruits, if you know that idea from the Bible. Uh, but a forerunner. Uh, remember in Hebrews where it says he was a forerunner when he went into the Holy of Holies? To, uh, now, as human beings, we have access to God fully um, through prayer because of what he's done for us. That's not, another word, same idea, different uh, topic. So I would say then with baptism, there, there's this idea of this one-way thing where it's not even really about us. Jesus is saying, get out of the water. Let me go in. It's me who, I'm going to be baptized. That's why the question here, right, is, are you able to be baptized, really? Like, the, the implied answer is no, you're not. Uh, this reminds me of Peter washing feet. Remember that? Where Peter's like, why are you washing our feet? Let me wash your feet. It's the same logic. And Jesus says, no, you don't understand, right? Here he's saying, get out of the water. Let me be baptized for you. The human side, though, would be to say that when we believe in Jesus here, we share in this. This, is, this starts to get now into Christian baptism, which is not like John the Baptist baptism, to make it more confusing. Uh, but there's another kind of baptism later that I don't have time to go into today. But I, I do want to say one thing about it, and I'm going to do it by way of an illustration. Um, and it's kind of dark, but it's Halloween. So here we go. Um, the, it has to do, you guys hear about this story, it's in the news for a few weeks, maybe even longer, about this um, 
this murder, uh, this guy who killed his girlfriend out west, uh, Brian Laundrie, I think it was, and Gabby Petito. Did you guys hear about this? I'm seeing a number of nods. Okay, I think it was pretty much, it seemed to be like everywhere. So if you didn't hear, don't, don't worry about it. I'll try to fill you in. But basically, he traveled with his girlfriend. He returned home without her. And it's like, well, where is she? And she didn't say anything, which is obviously making him look like super guilty and that he killed her. They did find his, her body. Then he was gone. So he was this person of interest who became a fugitive. He was gone for weeks, and they finally found his body. Probably killed himself. Um, it's just this crazy, you know, just super tragic, crazy thing. All right, but then I'm, re- I'm reading about, I, I just saw an article come up about finding his body. I'm reading this article. And I see this statement here from a federal prosecutor uh, on the case who said, the criminal case is done. There's no prosecuting a dead person. And I thought, oh man, that is exactly what Christian baptism is about. Right there. That's precisely it. Or one side of it, the human side, you could say. To go back to my differentiation before. You see, because if you believe in Jesus, you're dead. Who can accuse you anymore? What prosecution can be done? What weight of thing you need to do with your life can be put before you? What blame? And so in Romans 6, you see this where it says, do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? See how it's two sides of the one coin? Jesus died for you, but you died with him when you believed. Jesus rose for you, but you rose with him figuratively speaking. So you're, you're a new creation. You're not who you were before God. A lot of ways we are. A lot of ways we aren't, right? That's also kind of the paradox here. Romans 6, 7, for one who's died has been set free from sin. Uh, in context, is sin uses the law or the commandments or morality, whatever you want to call it, to beat us over the head and kill us. But if we're already dead, what more can it do? But how did we die? We died with Christ. Do you guys see that? It's actually really cool kind of hard. You know, it's, it's uh, very ethereal. But at the same time, this is exactly... See, at least understand this. The gospel is not about behavior modification. It, it, you at least have to see that. We're, I mean, we are, in a lot of ways, we're exactly like Brian Laundrie. We're just as bad. We maybe haven't murdered our girlfriends, but we've uh, murdered people in our heart. We've murdered uh, by hate, Jesus says in Matthew 5, right? We ha- we're just as liable to the fires of hell. Because sin, sin is inward, not outward. Is his point, you know, like, um, we're on the run. We're guilty. The gospel is about death and resurrection. The gospel is about Christ invading tombs and calling people out. It's not about him being your teacher. You're not going to school with him. Uh, In fact, in Galatians 3, we see that movement away from taskmaster, school-like nature, a teacher-like nature of the law, to Christ who replaces it. But it's another, another sermon. All right, so I want to read this last thing and we'll uh, wrap up. But basically, the idea is this. Um, if anyone is a fugitive from God without a hope in the world, but who believe in Christ, there's no prosecution anymore. There's no condemnation. There's no electric chair, no second trial, no threat, no prison sentence, no hell. Because Jesus has died for us in our place and we have died in him. We are bat- through baptism. We are baptized into his grace. So rest easy, failure Christians. No dark angel, no amount of sin can ever take him away from us because he remains on us. 
and with us all our days into eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, passage. Uh, and there's so much, so much richness and um, wealth in it for us. Thank you that you are the lamb, that you are the descender, the remainer, uh, the one who was baptized for us, that it primarily has to do about you, uh, not us. And yet we are baptized because we share in it. Uh, we are plunged ourselves into death and out of the tomb by faith, spiritually speaking. Um, and we follow you in, we follow you out. We have a new identity, we're new creations. We can no longer be targeted by the accuser. We, can no longer, we, we no longer assess ourselves uh, in comparison to others. Uh, we, we no longer have any kind of like law or stand. There's, there's, no, there's nothing over us. There's no prosecution or condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 8.1. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Help us to believe that, revel in that, knowing that for that to be true, Christ had to be condemned. The one guy who's ever lived who didn't deserve to be condemned was condemned for us so we can be set free. A law or a, a death has occurred that sets us free uh, from sins, as Hebrews says. A, a death has occurred and so we're okay. We're, we're okay forever. Thank you for that good news and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.